Psalm 26 is where we're at this morning. Please turn there if you've got your Bible. I hope you do. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on this back table, on this back sound booth area that you are welcome to go grab. And if you don't have one at home, you're welcome to keep it. Psalm 26. This is a, a psalm of praise. So we have, we've decided that we're going to go through the book of Psalms and we're going to kind of break them out into what kind of style that psalm is. Last week we, we talked about uh, a psalm of wisdom from Psalm 1 and how those are general steps of life applying to everyone in every place at every age of the world. That's wisdom. Today we move to a psalm of praise and I've titled it Remembrance Leads to Worship. And you'll understand why I say that as we go this morning. This is a psalm of David, okay, like many of the other ones, 72, 73 of the psalms are attributed to David. This comes from a specific time in David's life that I think it would be helpful for us to understand what was going on. So when we gave the intro to psalms, I mentioned how it's good to know what's happening in the world, in the, in the nation of Israel, and in the author's life at the time that they're writing the psalm. And so we think that this this psalm probably came out of a situation in David's life where he was being pursued by Saul. Saul and the army of Israel, some of them anyway, thought that David had it in for the king and wanted the throne, and so they were pursuing David. So keep your, your finger in Psalm 1, but flip back to 1 Samuel. Um, not Psalm 1, Psalm 26, sorry. But flip back, before we read that, I want to read from 2 Samuel. Scratch that, 1 Samuel. I'll get it right at some point here. It's in my notes, correct? First Samuel chapter 24, starting with the first verse. We're going to read through the first 15 together. This is a really interesting story. First Samuel 24. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness in En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. Okay, are are you with me? David and his men are hiding in the cave that Saul goes in to use the restroom. And the men of David said to him, Here's the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give you your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem uh, good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he'd cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he, he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there's no wrong treason in my hands. I've not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. 
May the Lord judge between you, between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Now let's stop right there. Notice verse 11. David says, I've not sinned against you, even though you are trying to kill me. I've not sinned against you. Look at verse 15. May the Lord therefore judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. Now keep, keep those words in mind. Flip back to Psalm 26. Psalm 26. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord, and try me. Test my heart and my mind, for your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I will walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. Heavenly Father, we may not be faced with a identical situation that David was. Lord, but we encounter moments every week where we need to be affected by how David responded. By saying, no matter what else, no matter what anybody else does, as for me, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to trust in your righteousness. I'm going to walk in integrity. Lord, help us to see and remember your great deeds in our lives. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So when we get into the first verses of Psalm 26, and David says, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity I've walked in perfection, some translations put it. He's not saying that he's a perfect guy, right? I mean, just look at any number of his other psalms that he's written. He's just antagonizing over his own sin. He's, he's not saying he's perfect and spotless overall. I think what he's saying, and as you saw from 1 Samuel 24, in this situation that he's referring to, he was, he was sinless, in fact, he said that to Saul, look, I have not sinned against you. In that essence, in wanting to cause Saul harm, he's innocent. He is perfect. He's upright. So he pleads with God, with Jehovah. He says, vindicate me, defend me, judge and deliver me from those who would wish me harm. 
This is David's prayer, his hope here. And then and he, he makes it really clear, and I think this is clear to all of us even today, wicked men lie in wait, and they want to pounce on people who care about truth. They, they don't. And so when they see people walking in integrity, sometimes it makes them look bad, and they don't like that. And so they lie in wait in order to hurt and harm them. David says he's been walking in integrity because he has in this situation. He also says in this first verse that he, his trust is not in himself. Think about this. It's not in his own fighting ability. It's not in the fact that he was right. It's not even in the fact that he had guys with him that could defend him and put up a fight. Like they could have taken out Saul easily, but they didn't. His trust was not in those things. What was it in? The Lord. Jehovah. It was in God. Think about this. An immediate application here this morning. When danger is on our doorstep, like it was for David here, when, when David was being treated unfairly, what did he do? Did he run out to the other people in Israel and try to tell his side of the story? Did he try to, to, to make a smear campaign against Saul? He didn't. He didn't do any of those things. Because his trust was in the Lord, as the King James Version puts it, in verse 12, he says, I will, or in verse 1, he says, I will not slide. I like the way that it says that. I will not slide. His foot stands firm. He will not be shaken. He will not stumble because he's walking in integrity. And look at verse 2. I think it proves this very thing. He says, Lord, prove me. Test me. Try me, my heart and my mind. And you, you have to be pretty convinced of your innocence to say that kind of thing to Almighty God, right? Very rarely, if ever, have I prayed this kind of prayer. Usually it's like, man, forgive me, Lord, because I did mess it up. I did do the wrong thing. David's saying, I didn't do anything wrong. Lord, test me. Reveal any unclean way in me, he says in other places. Is that how we face problems in our lives? Are we so confident of our innocence that we're asking God, pleading with God to test us and try us? Not most of the time. Most of the time, that's the furthest thing from our minds. We want mercy and grace because we need it. Examine my heart. Look into my mind, Lord, David says. Do our eyes turn inward to see if there's maybe some truth to what's happening? Or do they just turn outward? Are we trying to like just get ahead of the situation and make our point heard above anybody else's? Or in humility, do we humble ourselves before the Lord? Now, don't misunderstand me. If... A person is being slandered. It's not wrong to insist on our innocence or even defend our character. It's not, it's not really even a mark of like real spirituality to be indifferent when people are criticizing us. Now, I do think that there's wisdom in keeping our mouths shut most of the time. I mean, you could just look at Jesus' example on his way to the cross. That's what he did. He had every reason to defend himself and he remained silent. 
There's wisdom in that, but there is a time to be silent and, and there is a time to speak. May God give us wisdom as his people, especially in our current cultural climate today. Look at verse 3. He moves from asking the Lord to go ahead and test him to verse 3. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. David says that he has walked or he walks currently in your truth or faithfulness to the Lord. His ways are pure because he's been walking in the truth. The truth is pure. So David is pure by walking in it. Now we mentioned this last week that when you're walking in truth, you really have no reason to fear. It's like we're trying to teach my kids, like unless you're doing something wrong, you don't need to run away from the police. Like they're trying to help. You only run away or avoid them if you're doing something wrong. We talked about that last week. We only need to fear the law if we're breaking it. If our lifestyle is marked by obedience, like David, we say, go ahead, evaluate it. Try it. Try me. See if I've messed up in any way. What does David say is before his eyes? Look back at verse 3. What does he say is before them? The love of God. The loving kindness of the Father. Steadfast faithfulness. This idea, I think, is connected to the next couple of verses. Let's read verses 4 and 5. He says, I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. Imagine something with me this morning. Uh, let's imagine that you have been stranded in the desert for two weeks with just enough water to survive. Okay, so you've not eaten for, for two weeks. Just enough water to survive. After weeks of searching, you come across a little cabin by a stream. Okay, so of course the first thing you do, man, is you go over there and you, however you drink the water, you drink your fill. As soon as you're thirst is quenched, what does your mind probably jump to? Your stomach, right? So you're hungry. So you, you go in this cabin and on the table, you see a carrot. You see a carrot. You don't see anything else to eat, but you see on this table, you see a single carrot. And at that point, after not eating for two weeks, how does that carrot look? It looks real good. Right? It might as well be like a pan of cinnamon rolls or something. It looks real good at that point. So you, <clears throat> you're there in the house and you see this carrot and you're about to go grab it. And all of a sudden, the owner of the house comes out and he's got on his plate a nice, thick, juicy, buttery steak. Now, yeah, that's what I was going to say. How does the carrot look now? Right? It doesn't look quite as good anymore. Something better has come along. And if you don't like meat or if you don't eat meat, I'm sorry, this example doesn't work for you, but um, trust us, something better has come along. Guys, Christians might be tempted to sit with wicked people, to consort with troublemakers, but there's something far better to put before our eyes than that stuff. For David, the loving kindness or faithfulness of the Lord was better than any worldly appeals, than anything else. There might be situations where it seems pleasurable to hang out with people that don't know or love God, but those 
situations, they never bring real joy. They never bring lasting happiness. For the Christian, there is something better to focus on than the things of this world. There's something better. You might be tempted to take the carrot, but know that there is something so much more satisfying for you in Christ. He is something better that's come along to put before our eyes. We see that love of the Father displayed in the giving of his son. David says also that he hates the assembly of evildoers. He refused to be influenced by them. He refused to copy or be dragged into the wrong behavior of people that didn't know or love God. He understood this the simple thing, and this kind of harkens back to what we talked about last week too, but he understood that we're known by the company that we choose. Is that true of you today? Young people especially, do you understand that? Your reputation is influenced by who your circle of friends are. David, Solomon, and so many other biblical authors agree that we are great, greatly influenced by those around us, whether we realize it or not. You will be known by the company you choose, so choose wisely. Christians remember God's kindness in the past. We dwell on it in the present, in our thoughts, and we also hope for it in the days to come. All of those things are wrapped up in the loving kindness of God that David was putting before his eyes. It was better than anything else. And now he moves into the the effect. So all of those things that we've just talked about, that David had just shared, they have an effect on him. Look at verse 6 and 7. This is what the effect of God's faithfulness and love should have in the life of a believer. And it's this, it's praise. Worship. 6 and 7. He says, I wash my hands in innocence. I go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. Because David's ways were pure and innocent, he was ready and willing to participate in worship. Now, this is really referring back to Old Testament worship. You can see here that in a symbolic and literal sense for David, the people of God, Jews, were to wash before making sacrifices. This was a big deal. So David washed in his, his he washed his hands in innocence as a symbol of his purity. Now, ceremonial washings were a big deal to the Jews, especially in David's day. There are stories that I was reading this week where Jews were ended up in prison and they only had enough water to either drink or wash their hands before their meal and they would use it to wash their hands. They would rather go thirsty. In fact, one of them said, it's better to die of thirst than transgress the tradition of the elders. That was how big a deal washings were, ceremonial washings were. Whether we think it's silly or not, that's how important the tradition was. These verses that David just shared, they have obvious and intentional references to worship. Look, look back at them with me. He says, I wash my hands. I'm going to go around the altar, proclaim thanksgiving, tell of his wondrous deeds. Now, Christ's once and for all sacrifice as our great high priest means that we don't focus on ceremonial washings and sacrifices on the altar here anymore. We're not bound by that tradition here on this side of the cross. But as a result of the greatest sacrifice of all, that ought to cause us to worship differently. When we remember the sacrifice of Christ, we should respond like David. He says, I'm going to proclaim your thanksgiving. 
I'm going to, I'm going to proclaim thanksgiving. I'm going to shout your praise. He says, I'm going to tell of your wondrous deeds. What do you have to be thankful for? What wondrous deed has God done in your life just this week? And I'm going to pause for a few seconds here in some awkward silence. And I want us just to mentally think back on this week and find something, pinpoint some deed of God that you have to be thankful for. Today isn't a day that we're going to share those things. We may do that in the future. But think about that thing in your head that the Lord has brought to your mind. Even if you were being pursued to death like David was, you can rejoice because of the faithfulness of God. It's still there. He's still with you. What a joy it is to recall these things as his people individually, but also corporately. And so when we sing songs like we sang this morning, we remember corporately what God has done and we give him praise. It's a blessing that David didn't take for granted. And I don't think we should either. Now move on to verse eight with me. Oh Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. I have been a basketball fan really my whole life. Started really liking soccer, but uh, quickly became a basketball fan. And I grew up in the 80s, and so I, of course, grew up watching Michael Jordan. Okay? Michael Jordan's alma, alma mater is North Carolina, the North Carolina Tar Heels. And so I, I've been a big fan um, since I was a kid. About 15 years ago, some friends from college and I were in North Carolina. I don't even remember why. We were there for something. And we had the opportunity to go see a game. And so we bought tickets from a scalper outside. And we went in and we got to see North Carolina Tar Heels play in their home arena. And it was really a thrill. It was really neat. You know, we were looking around during the game and there are thousands and thousands of people in that stadium. And we are all cheering together with a united purpose. Now there were some, I don't remember who they were playing and I'm sure there were some of those fans there, but not many. And it was pretty obvious when you looked around. And so we're all cheering with this united purpose. We want to see the home team win. And it, as you can imagine, it got loud. It was fun. It was a neat atmosphere. When a North Carolina player did something awesome, you could just hear it in the response of the people there. When the other team did something awesome, you could hear that too, or the lack of that. You know, it got real quiet. So we're sitting there and looking around and engaged in all of this, and you look up, and I see the hanging jersey of my childhood, one of my childhood heroes, you know, Michael Jordan's up above in the rafters there. And you just can't kind of help but be struck by some awe in that situation. It was neat. It was a really cool environment. And then afterwards, we even got the chance to walk down and actually walk, not in the middle of the floor, but kind of along the edge of the floor. And so, you know, we're thinking all, all of my friends and I grew up at the same time. We're all big Michael Jordan fans. And now we're walking on the floor where Michael Jordan walked. Now that I get is a really silly thing. And many of you are like, this is so lame, Rod. <laughs> you are a dork. Okay, I get it it was really kind of a, a neat time. And I know it's a silly comparison, but look, I think this has to do with verse eight. David says, I love the habitation of your house 
and the place your glory dwells. Carolina Tar Heel fans love, what is it, Dean Smith Center? They love that place. Some of them might even regard it as their sanctuary. Inappropriately so, nothing compares to the sanctuary of the Lord. And that's what David is getting at. He, he loves the habitation of the Lord's house. He loves the place where God's glory dwells. Christians love the church. That's as simple as I can say it. And we, we don't love the church just for the building. This building is wonderful, but we don't love this building that way. We love the people, and we don't just love the people. We love the one who builds this place, right? He's the master architect. We're just the building blocks in that church. But we love the church, Christians do. The creator God himself dwells in that sanctuary where his people are and his fame and glory are truly a sight to behold. Look at verse 9 and 10 with me. David says, Don't sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands are evil devices and whose right hands are full of bribes. It's interesting to me how these men are described compared to the man that David is aiming to be in the first seven verses here. Just look back with me. David is working hard at walking in integrity, at trusting in the Lord without wavering, putting right things in front of his face before his eyes, avoiding those who do evil, not consorting with the wicked, and actively engaging in worship regularly. And then he gets to these people, And it's the total opposite, right? They're taking bribes, which is a a big no-no in any culture, but especially then. They weren't supposed to do that. These were bloodthirsty men. In In their hands were evil schemes. All they cared about was getting ahead, and they didn't care about how it affected anyone else. Righteous people and wicked people are different. They do not think alike. They do not feel alike. They do not speak alike. They do not act alike. They don't live alike and they don't die alike. They're different from the inside out. And David here is pleading with the Lord. He's saying, don't lump me in with guys like that. It's not who I want to be and it's not who I've been. He says in verse 11, he comes back around to this phrase. He says, walk in my integrity. Read verse 11 with me. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. David wanted to be known as a guy who had integrity. And so should we. And he was resolved to do it. I I love the way that he starts this verse out. He says, basically, no matter what anybody else does, it does not matter. For me, I'm going to walk in integrity. We need men and women with this attitude today. No matter what anybody else does, even if the entire culture moves towards this thing, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. There's strength when we say that. These words sound really familiar to what Joshua said. As for me and my house, no matter what anybody else's house, no matter what anybody else's people are doing, we're going to serve the Lord. David says, no matter what anybody else is doing, I'm going to have integrity. And yet, the end of this verse reveals, reveals something important. Despite his best efforts, David knew that he still needed grace. He still needed redemption. He says, redeem me and be gracious to me. Good intentions and good works in themselves are not enough. We need a redeemer. We need the grace of God. Look at verse 12. My foot stands on level ground. In the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. And when your life is lived out differently 
for the glory of God and not for the pursuits of this earthly world, you can have confidence that your foot stands on solid ground. That doesn't mean that your life isn't going to have any troubles. It doesn't mean your life is going to be perfect and not ever hurt. But it does mean that if you walk in an upright way, you can have confidence before the Lord. The King James Version ends in verse 1 with this phrase. It says, I have trusted also in the Lord, therefore I shall not slide. Verse 12 confirms this and says, My foot stands in an even place. That's what the KJV says. And what exactly does he mean by this? I think just that he's confident that when his life is grounded on truth, he's stable, he's secure. He can have confidence. There's a break here in the original language of verse 12 between the first and last kind of stanzas. Uh, But I still think that there's a connection here, and I want to point that out. I think David identifies, to some degree, an earthly location where his foot won't slide, where his foot is secure, where he knows that there is solid ground in the great assembly, in the congregation. Don't misunderstand me. Christ is our cornerstone. He is the solid ground on which we stand. But I think there's a practical aspect to what's being shared here. I don't think I'm overstating it either when I say that the church is vital to your everyday life. Many people think that they could do without it. And I just don't think that that's the case. I don't think David thought that either. I think when he was hiding on the run in the cave, he was missing this. He was missing the assembly the congregation, and he longed to be there with other believers. Can you worship the Lord in a flowery meadow? Yeah, you can. Can you praise God walking along a stream? Yes, I believe so. Can you have a time of elation and joy looking at a mount, off of a mountain at a, this beautiful view? Yeah. I think you can, but none of that stuff does for your soul what being with the people of God does. It's different. When David said, I will not slide in verse one, he expressed it as a hope, kind of like a prayer. But when he talks about standing on level ground in verse 12, his mood has changed. He's assured of it. He is confident of it. And what follows that confidence? Worship praise. The New Living Translation says, I will publicly praise the Lord. In the great assembly, in the congregation, I will publicly praise the Lord. Both in this life and in the next life, Christians are going to rejoice in the Lord very openly. Now, this doesn't mean that you have to be the loudest singer during the music time at church. This doesn't mean that you have to be the one that raises your hand the highest while we sing, but I do think it means that we should unashamedly worship the Lord no matter who's around, no matter where we are, and especially in the congregation here with God's people. Now, let me go back and I want to draw a couple conclusions and application points as we close. The first thing, and I actually forgot to even mention this in my notes, but notice a couple of key words that we actually ran into last week walk, sit, and stand. Did you catch those in Psalm 26? Look back at verses 1 and 3. I've walked in my integrity. Verse 3, I walk in your faithfulness. Look at verses 4 and 5 with the word sit. I do not sit with the men of falsehood, 
nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. Now look at verse 12. My foot stands on level ground. Right in Psalm 1, David said, I'm not going to walk, sit, or stand with the wicked. And here, he's he's confirming that, and he's lived it out. He hasn't walked in those things. He's walked in integrity. He isn't sitting with the wicked people. He's sitting with the faithfulness and love of God before his eyes. And his foot is not standing with the wicked. He's standing on truth, on the level, solid ground of Christ alone. Look also in verse 3 at that word loving kindness. We would, I think, be better off if we thought about God's kindness more and more frequently celebrated it. And that's why we took that time to just think back to God's faithfulness in our lives this week. We'd be better off to do that more often. I I don't know what that might look like. I've got a suggestion here in just a moment, but listen to this quote. It should ever be before our eyes as a theme of our contemplation and on our lips as a theme of praise. The faithfulness of God. There's little more that revives our faith and puts things in the right perspective than remembering the love of God, specifically in Christ Jesus. That revives our faith. Maybe, here's a practical thought, maybe in order to remember that better and reflect on that more, maybe we keep a notepad and a a pencil by our bed. And before you go to bed each night, you just write down one, two, three, four, five things that day that you saw God's faithfulness in. And then take a look at that notepad at the end of the week and look back at all of God's faithfulness. That's what causes us to not get in a funk, right? That's what causes us to not get in a rut of woe is me. We look at God's faithfulness on a practical, daily, weekly level, and we're reminded of his truth, of his loving kindness that's before our eyes. Now, don't make the mistake of only remembering times of like prosperity and joyfulness on those lists if you make one. A lot of the Psalms, and we're going to get into some in a couple of weeks, a lot of the Psalms recall the difficulties of life. Just because we focus on the faithfulness of God doesn't mean our lives are not difficult. Think about Paul and Silas in prison in Philippi, literally in chains behind bars. And what were they doing? Singing, worshiping. And it quite literally caused the earth to shake. Let us bless the Lord at all times, because at all times... We have cause to do so. And at all times, he is worthy of that praise. Lastly, I want to just revisit the story of Saul and David in the cave. So flip back to 1 Samuel chapter 24, starting in verse 16. We're going to see how this plays out and then what it means for us. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you've declared this day how you dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall surely be established in your hand. 
Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. And Saul went home. David and his men went up to the stronghold. Some interesting things about how this story turned out. Did you catch what it was that convinced Saul of David's right to the throne? It wasn't the fact that Samuel had already anointed David for that job. Saul knew it. Didn't care. He was still trying to kill him. What was it that convinced Saul of David's right to rule? David's righteousness. It was his goodness. Saul knew it. He should have been a dead man. He says that. He says, what person sees their enemy and lets them go free? That doesn't happen. David walked in integrity and the Lord set his feet on solid ground and he blessed him. What David longed for and sometimes lived out is the thing that Christ does all the time. David says, test me, try me. But then if you look at Psalm 51, you see David saying, Lord, forgive me. I've messed up. David wanted to be that man. I think many of us want to be that kind of person that we walk in integrity. And the thing that we aim for and sometimes accomplish, Jesus Christ did perfectly. We resolve to walk in integrity like David did, but sometimes we stumble and fall. Christ never did. We ask the Lord to prove us, to test us like David, but we fail the test so often. Christ never failed. We know it's wrong to engage in the evil things that we see people around us doing. We know that it's wrong, and yet sometimes we give in. Jesus never did. He did perfectly what you and I only aspire to do. There's a reason why I say that today. Because even if you have a heart that wants to walk in integrity, you can never fulfill it perfectly. Just like David said, he knew he needed to be redeemed. Do you understand you need to be redeemed? Do you know where to go to be redeemed? can only be to the Savior, to the one who did do it perfectly. Good works are right for believers to work hard at. I mean, really, they're an evidence of our salvation. But by themselves, without faith, good works will not save you. Christ is the one who must redeem us. It's his grace that superabounds over our sin. We must put our faith in him alone to be saved. And his life can be your life today. His perfect righteousness can be given to you today, not by praying really hard or doing a lot of really good things, but just by putting your faith in Jesus Christ, by turning away and repenting from your sin, by putting all of our hope for being right before God, not on ourself, but on Jesus, by living our life in a way that pleases God, not in a way that chases after the stuff of this world. The result of a a fuller view of our Savior will be worship. The result of remembering God's faithfulness will be worship. He is our solid ground, and therefore, we praise His name. I'd encourage you to make a point today. If this is not true of you, if you know in your heart that this is not described me, I'd like, you know, I want to do the right thing, but more often than not, I find myself doing what I don't want to do. You can be set free from that kind of life today in Christ. 
And so as we sing our final song together as a time of reflection, I would invite you to, number one, cry out to the Lord. I can't save you. He can. Cry out to the Lord. But if you'd like some help in talking through how to do that, what that looks like, I'll be standing up here in the front. Come and grab me and we'll talk. Lord, as we sing and think about your faithfulness that we put before our eyes, that's what we want to put before our eyes. Lord, if we don't know, if we've never seen the truth of the sacrifice of Christ on my behalf, Lord, I don't know what that looks like. I don't know what your faithfulness looks like because you've shown it most clearly at just the right time for us as sinners. So we thank you for that sacrifice. We thank you for the perfect life that Jesus lived, the sacrificial death that he died. And then now, Lord, we thank you that he intercedes for his people. I pray that you would grant repentance. I pray that you would grant salvation to all those who are hearing your call today. Move in our hearts as we seek to follow you. In Christ's name I pray, amen.